Are you awake this morning? <laughs> I know we had a uh, little less sleep last night, many of us. The Holy Spirit's typical way of working is to use the Word of God as we think about it, and then it gets applied to our hearts. And that means our minds must be engaged. So are you ready to have your minds engaged on this Sunday morning? Turn with me to Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. We're going to read again Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all to what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now we've already covered this passage in detail. We've unpacked what it teaches us about the Christian's relationship to government. And yet we're still hanging around this passage of scripture. Why? Because in verse 5, it brings our attention to the subject of the conscience. And here is a subject which people seem to be giving less and less attention to in our day, and yet it is a vitally important subject. In 1997, a Brinks armored truck crashed on I-95 on an overpass in Miami, Florida. This particular truck was carrying $3.7 million in cash and change. The accident caused hundreds of thousands of dollars to come pouring out over the overpass and down to the neighborhood below. People began yelling that money was falling from the sky. Scores of people came out of their houses and began grabbing as much as they could as fast as they could. Here's a little snippet of how the L.A. Times reported the story. Residents scrambled on their hands and knees to grab a share of the fortune. And a police spokesman said pandemonium reigned in the area just north of downtown. There was money everywhere, Lieutenant Bill Schwartz said. You couldn't walk anywhere without stepping on money. The streets were paved with gold. Dozens of people scooped up an estimated $400,000 in bills and coins and then scattered as police sirens were heard. 
They were sticking it in bags, boxes, anything, sticking it in their pockets, their pants, their shirts. They were fighting each other for the money, Schwartz said. All of this was happening while up on the overpass, there were two wounded men who had just been in a very serious accident. Thankfully, those men did escape with minor injuries, but they do not appear to have been of any concern to the people below. Money falling from the sky was a dream come true. This happened in early January. Uh, One resident said he considered the money a late Christmas present from heaven itself. Of course, the reality is the money didn't belong to these people. What they were doing was stealing. They were taking money that rightfully belonged to the companies who had hired Brinks to safely transport it. Later, two women were arrested when they got caught with more than $8,000 worth of food stamps that had come from that truck. But the bills and the coins could not be traced. The police had no way of recovering the stolen money. Only conscience could lead people to return it. Uh, The police put out news bulletins and aired over uh, TV and radio that for 48 hours... Anybody who would return the stolen money would face no charges. Of the hundreds of people who took money, only two people returned some of it. One was a mother of six. She returned $19.53. She said that her children had been watching her, and she knew she must do what was right before the watching eyes of her kids. The other person that returned money was 11-year-old Herbert Tarvin, a sixth grader, who was convicted in his conscience because of the 80 cents that he had taken. He confessed what he had done to to his teacher at school and turned in the money to her. And we might smile at that. We might find it amusing But in one sense, that young man showed a courage of character that apparently scores of adults did not have. Uh, That young man had a conscience which guided him to do what was right before the eyes of God. Meanwhile, others worshipped the God of Mammon and found all sorts of ways to justify why it must be okay for them to keep someone else's money. So I just ask, what would you have done? you'd been in that situation how is your conscience is it tender is it guiding you is it convicting you when you ought to be convicted or would your conscience have sat quietly by letting you steal and keep what belongs to someone else what is the state of your conscience In our study so far, we've seen that conscience is the inner courtroom of the soul, established by God, in which a person judges himself. We've seen that conscience is a gift from God that helps prepare us today for the final judgment to come on the last day. We've already seen the functions of conscience. It's a law preacher speaking to us of right and wrong in a situation. We've seen that conscience is a recorder or register, that it takes note when we've done something wrong, that our conscience keeps a record of moral failure. 
We've seen that our conscience is a prosecuting attorney, that it cries out against us in our souls, pointing out that we deserve to be judged and condemned for what we've done. We've also seen that our consciences can be defense attorneys, helping us know when we've done right and that we have nothing to be ashamed for before God, even if others falsely accuse us. And we've seen that our conscience is a judge declaring in our inner courtroom what we know to be true in the courts of heaven when we've sinned, namely, that we are guilty before a holy God. Why did God create the conscience? What was its purpose? Well, we gathered from Scripture three purposes for the conscience. First, to inform us of how we stand before God. Second, to be used by the Holy Spirit to bring us to Christ, to bring us to salvation. And third, we saw that on the last day, every human conscience will bear witness that we knew that something we were about to do was wrong and yet did it anyway. Because of conscience, no unbeliever will be able to question God's judgment on the last day. Their own consciences will condemn them before him. And then finally, we ended last time by noting that you really can have a clean conscience. That you really can have what the Bible calls a good conscience before God. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now this morning, I want us to move on and look at some of the characteristics of conscience. What are some of the attributes of this God-given part of us called the conscience. I'm going to mention five, and as we walk through these, I hope we'll better understand why having a clean conscience before God is a thousand times better than being rich or powerful. Um, There are few things more comforting at the time of death than to die with a clean conscience. And I can think of few things more tormenting at death than to know that you're coming to your end with a conscience that is troubled and anxious. So first, the conscience is universal. The conscience is universal. And by that, I simply mean this. Everybody has one. Everybody has a conscience. It's part of the way God made man. Uh, Sometimes we'll talk about a horrific criminal, and we'll say, well, that person doesn't even seem to have a conscience. But that person does have a conscience. All people have a conscience. We know this because of Romans 2, verse 15, where Paul speaks this way, reminding us that the work of the law, that is the knowledge of right and wrong, is written on every person's heart. And to prove his point, he points to the conscience, which bears witness to the reality of the knowledge of right and wrong in every person. If only some people have consciences, Paul's argument in Romans 2 falls apart. He's speaking of conscience as a universal reality. Conscience is a part of God's design for all human beings. It's part of what it means to be human. So just as every person has a soul, every person also has that aspect of their soul called a conscience. Now, what about those people? who seem so cold and so wicked that they appear not to have a conscience. The problem is not that they don't have one. The problem is the state of their conscience. And we'll talk about that a little further along. Number two, 
The conscience is essential. The conscience is essential. And by that, I simply mean this. Your conscience is not a temporary aspect of who you are. Your conscience is not a part of you that exists just for this life only. Rather, your conscience is a part of your soul, a true part of your soul, an essential part of your soul, a part of you that will be with you for eternity. When Romans 2.15 speaks of our consciences, it speaks of our consciences acting after death before the Lord. Moreover, it seems probable that part of the joy of heaven will be living for all eternity with a conscience made clean by the blood of Jesus. And that part of the torment of hell will be the torment that human souls endure as their own consciences continue to declare them guilty as they suffer God's wrath. So your conscience is an essential part of who you are. It is a part of what makes you you. It is a part of you that will last forever. Third, the conscience is inescapable. It is inescapable. To quote the Puritans, you can no more escape from conscience than you can run away from yourself. Uh, The conscience is not outside of us. So that we can put distance between us and our conscience. No, wherever you go, your conscience is there. Uh, From the greatest to the least, all sorts of people have tried to find ways to escape their consciences. Bars all over the world today will be full of people trying to quiet their conscience through drink. Others have turned to stronger drugs... Others have lost themselves in their work. Others have become Netflixaholics. All in this effort, whether conscious or unconscious, to distract themselves, not to be quiet with their consciences, not to let their consciences continue to speak. Some of the richest and most powerful in the world have gone so far as to take their own lives. Because it was the only way they knew to get away from the convicting torments of their own consciences. And yet, as we've seen, even suicide is not an escape. Because your conscience remains with you even in the life to come. We can never get away from our consciences. You will never be free from your conscience. Your only hope is to have your conscience cleansed, appeased, soothed by the blood of Jesus. Fourth, the conscience is logical. It's logical. I find this interesting. Um, fascinating. I'd never thought about it before until I was preparing for this study and it kept popping up in my materials. Christians for many centuries have noted how even the most emotional, unreasonable, and illogical people have consciences that are very logical. In fact, the Puritans pointed out that your conscience is an expert at logic, especially at syllogisms. You know what syllogism is? Right? A syllogism takes two or more propositions and then draws a rock-solid logical conclusion. We often trace that kind of logic back to Aristotle, but in reality, it's how every person's conscience works. 
For example, proposition one, it's wrong to steal. Proposition two, I stole. Conscience conclusion, you're guilty. This is how the conscience works. Whether you even recognize it, your conscience convicts you through logic. Your, your conscience is an even surer logician than Aristotle. J.I. Packer says this. Packer says, Syllogistic reasoning may seem a bit rationalistic to us today, but the reasonings of conscience, like most of our thinking processes, are often so compressed that we do not recognize the mechanics by which they are operating. In other words, most people never realize this. They don't think about it. But here's their conscience using logic to convict them. They flash through our own mind as fast as messages flash through computers. All we are consciously aware of is the conclusion. But if you examine the conclusions of conscience, you will find that the Puritan doctrine is vindicated. The conclusions of the conscience all have behind them major premises concerning general truths and minor premises concerning matters of particular fact. And then he just says, check it out and see. Look at your own conscience and see if you don't see that that's exactly how it works. It's very logical. Number five. The conscience is intimate. The conscience is intimate. Like God, your conscience is privy to every moment of your life. What no one else sees, your conscience sees. What no one else but you and God know about you, your conscience knows about you. The most intimate details of your life are laid bare before the eyes of your conscience. The Puritan said that the conscience is like a spy in your own bosom. It's included in every thought. It's an observer to every wave of emotion you experience. It is a witness to every attitude you maintain for good or for ill. Well, those are some of the biblical characteristics of conscience. Let's move to our next heading. The brokenness of conscience. The brokenness of conscience. You see, the Bible teaches that when man fell in the garden, every part of us was affected. Uh, Romans 3, we spent a lot of time in Romans 3, showing how inwardly and outwardly every part of who we are as human beings was affected by the fall. We believe in the doctrine of total depravity. And total depravity does not mean we're as depraved and sinful as we could be. But it does mean that there's not a part of us that is not affected by sin. Every part of natural man is now broken to some degree. When our consciences work right, they are a glorious gift. When our consciences function like they should, they help us experience in our souls the judgment of God so that we repent of our sins, so that we can run to Jesus and find peace with God. And then once we've come to Christ, our consciences become a guide and a counselor. They help us to walk the path of obedience and faithfulness. But when we talk about conscience, it's real easy to talk very negatively about it. Your conscience is a positive thing. It is a gift. It is good. It's glorious. You should thank God for your conscience. But 
When your conscience is malfunctioning, when your conscience is broken, it can cause all sorts of troubles. Think, for example, about the Christian who has believed on Jesus and has been declared blameless in the courts of heaven. God has forgiven that soul and his conscience still will not let him go. That Christian is experiencing something of hell on earth, even though his soul has been saved. So we're going to talk about some of the ways that we see the brokenness of human consciences And then we'll talk about how we can help our consciences function rightly. So number one, the brokenness of conscience is evident when it preaches false laws. When it preaches false laws. So remember, we already saw Romans 2.15. One of the functions of the conscience is to speak God's law to you. Your conscience is a testifier, and it testifies that's right before the eyes of God, that's wrong before the eyes of God. What happens when your conscience adopts false laws? That is, what happens when your conscience starts thinking that good is evil and evil is good? Um, This happens when our consciences suppress the law of God written deep into our hearts and instead begins to adopt a worldly morality that has man and man's desires at its center. Culture will do this to you if you're not careful. Uh, Right now, there are many people in our culture who truly believe that homosexuality is a morally appropriate lifestyle and that if you speak negatively about homosexuality, you're sinning. And those people may even have guilty consciences for having ever spoken about negatively about homosexuality in the past. How many politicians have we seen come forward in recent years apologizing for views and stances and things they said in the past? That we as Christians would say what they said in the past was right. But now, at least according to their statements, they've become convicted in their conscience that they were wrong. Our consciences can get turned upside down. There are some who believe that restricting abortion is a great evil. There are people who believe that taking the gospel to other people especially tribal peoples, is a great evil. Who want, for example, to repent of things like British colonialism, where these people took the gospel to African tribes and into South America in the name of Jesus. And today they say, we were so wrong. We should never have done that, imposing our religion on them. When our consciences have adopted false laws, laws that are not from God, we can be convicted and feel guilty for things that we ought not to feel guilty about. Another example of this would be uh, what might be called the Pharisee conscience. This is the conscience that is so concerned with outward religious practices and traditions of men that it forgets the actual law of God. Uh, Jesus said that this is the person that strains out a gnat while swallowing a camel. 
right? This is the person whose conscience convicts him for not wearing a coat and tie to church while he's not convicted at all about being harsh with his wife. Uh, This is the person whose conscience is convicting that person for listening to that secular song on the radio, but not convicting that person for ignoring the needs of their fellow church members. Straining the net, but swallowing the camel. Uh, Their conscience has replaced what really matters, the moral laws of God, with laws that God himself never actually laid down. Number two, the brokenness of conscience is evident when its memory is distorted. When its memory is distorted. Remember, we saw that conscience is a recorder, a register of what we have done. The conscience is supposed to bring back to your mind sins you've committed so that you can repent of them and turn from them. But sometimes pride and arrogance can reign so much in a person's heart that the conscience no longer takes note of that person's sins. The conscience quickly forgets the moments when the person ignored God's commands or hurts other people. In fact, the conscience only seems to remember that person's successes. Have you ever met anyone like this? They truly cannot remember ever having done anything wrong. They've become so full of themselves, the apple of their own eye, that it's as if their conscience has become their biggest fan. This person is very hard to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the only way to bring them to Jesus is to help their conscience remember again the sins of the past. And often they've begun to believe their own false narratives. They've they've rewritten the past so that they remember things differently than they actually happened. They believe their own lies so that they look better in their own memory of the past. Only the Spirit of God can rescue a person whose conscience is distorted like that. And and, and that may sound strange to you. I've been amazed at how many people in recent years I've talked to who seem to be in that kind of condition. Number three. The brokenness of conscience is evident when it fails to prosecute. When it fails to prosecute. That is, the conscience is supposed to come against you for your sin. It's supposed to say, do you not see your guilt of this? Do you not see what you've done? But there are two states of conscience that you can be in where this doesn't happen. One is called the sleepy conscience. The sleepy conscience. This is the conscience that is sluggish. It is slow to convict. This is from Romans 11 verse 8. Romans 11 verse 8 speaks of those whom God has given over to a spirit of stupor, a spirit of slumber. This is the condition of most unbelievers today. They don't realize the seriousness of their sins. They're not alert to the danger that their souls are in. They're not walking around with a fear of God. They're not walking around scared of the judgment and hell that is coming towards them. Their conscience is sleepy, sluggish, drowsy. 
Jobiki says the drowsy conscience makes sinners indifferent to the reality of Scripture's truths. Such sinners live in a fog. A drowsy conscience produces a silent conscience. It just doesn't speak to them about the sins they're committing. Are there any sleepy consciences here this morning? I know your body's sleepy. We got that. I get it now. Any sleepy consciences here this morning? Um, If so, you need to wake up. For the sake of your soul, you need to wake up. You, You need to know what it is to be honest about your sin, to tremble before God, to quake before God, to have some fear of God before your eyes again. To realize that a real day of judgment is coming, that hell is real, that you have real sins for which you will pay a real price. Don't sit in your seat thinking about what you got to get done this week when every second you live is a second closer to the day of your accounting. This holy God takes your sins with utmost seriousness. Do you? Worse than the sleepy conscience is the seared conscience. The seared conscience. This is the worst condition of all. May may none of us be in this condition. The seared conscience is the one who has been convicted of sin in the past. Over and over, but never truly repented, never turned from that sin. And instead, over time, that person sinned against their conscience over and over so many times that their conscience began to sear, to harden, to silence. This is the conscience that no longer feels any pangs of conviction at all. Uh, William Finner said, this is the conscience that can swallow down sin like drink without any remorse. Even the worst of sins no longer alarms them. It's as if the inner courtroom of the soul has closed its doors and is no longer functioning at all. These are the people that we sometimes say seem to have no conscience at all. They do have one, but it's, it's a seared conscience. I'm not pulling this out of a hat. Scripture speaks about this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Paul says to Timothy, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. I'll give you a tragic example of someone who appears to have had a seared conscience. He was a minister. Edgar Ray Killen in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Preacher. Over time, his racist views and his hatred for people of other ethnicities and skin colors hardened his heart. He became an organizer and a recruiter for the Ku Klux Klan. He adopted a worldview of white supremacy. 
His life became pervaded by these um, scriptural, demonic ideas. He began to surround himself with others who spoke and acted from this worldview so that he was preaching the principles of God on Sunday and yet suppressing those very principles he was preaching to justify his white supremacy views. And over time, his conscience began to harden. 1964, a black man named James Cheney from Meridian, Mississippi, two Jewish men from New York, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, came to town to encourage and help African Americans register to vote. The three of them were found dead, having been murdered. It was quickly found that the deputy sheriff, along with local members of the KKK, had assembled together to attack and kill these men. Several of the men were put on trial. The all-white jury convicted some of them, acquitted others. Edgar Ray Killen was put on trial, but it ended with a hung jury because one of the jury members refused to convict. She said she could not, in good conscience, convict a preacher. More than 40 years later, it was proved that not only did Killen participate in the murders, he led the murders. He was the instigator of the murders. He was the man who devised the plan, who recruited the mob, who led them to abduct and kill these men. It was he who led them to bury the bodies under a dam on a local farm. Finally, in 2005, he was retried and convicted. January of last year, he died in prison. And yet, to the very end, he showed absolutely no remorse. In 2014, he granted an interview to a reporter, and she asked him point blank. She said, looking back on your life and looking back on your crimes, do you have any regrets at all? His answer, quote, no, ma'am, no twang of conscience at all. Can you imagine a worse state of conscience than that? Here is a conscience that is so seared that it can look back and acknowledge, I did this and it was wrong. I did that and it was wrong. I did that and I don't care anymore. I feel nothing. Court is no longer in session in my soul. In one sense, this person is free. Free from the pangs of conscience, free from conviction, but it is a wicked freedom. It is a freedom that will lead you to hurt others, to abuse others, to create all kinds of problems in this world. And it is a temporary freedom because the moment you leave this life and go into the next life, that conscience will be reawakened and will bear witness against you before God himself. Edward Killen is no longer free from the torments of conscience. And he is certainly not free from the torments of God. May God spare every one of us from ever knowing what it is to have a seared conscience. And beware. Because every time you knowingly and presumptuously act against conscience. Every time you know that something is wrong and your conscience is protesting against doing it. And you choose to do it anyway. You're moving in that direction. That's how the conscience gets seared. Your conscience will not protest forever. 
If you continue to act against the protests of your conscience, it will eventually quiet itself. All right. Running out of time. We're out of time. So last example, and then we'll pick up tonight. This will be very quickly. Here it is. The brokenness of conscience is evident when it falsely prosecutes. When it falsely prosecutes. This is the conscience that continues to convict you when God has declared you forgiven and blameless and righteous in Christ. This is the conscience I mentioned earlier that continues to torment you, to declare you guilty in your soul when you have been fully pardoned in the courtrooms of heaven. And so now let me just ask you. I've described four conditions of conscience. Do any of these describe you? If any of these describe you, there is only one hope, and that is to run afresh to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to run to Jesus to embrace Him as the Savior provided for you by God. Knowing that when you trust in Him, your sins of the past are gone, your sins of the present are gone, your sins of the future are already gone, washed by His blood. And you need to trust Jesus that He will, by the Holy Spirit, transform you and make you holy. Jesus has the ability to heal your conscience, to restore your conscience. We'll talk about that tonight, how He does that. But there is no hope for your conscience apart from Jesus. The whole world exists for Jesus and the healing of your conscience can only come in connection with Him. So remember how He loves you. Remember how He went to the cross for sinners. Remember how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood can wipe away the deepest guilt. Just as Jesus calmed the sea, He can calm the storm in your troubled conscience. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace the good news that comes through Him. And in Christ, have peace with God. And if you don't know how to do that, come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Merle, come talk to lots of people in this room who know what it is to have found peace with God through Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.